Thank you guys and girls. Uh, wonderful job. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to just worship with you today. Uh, so I use a, uh, a music service to listen to music, and uh, every year at the end of the year, it tells me which song I listen to the most, and that last song was my song of 2021. So it'd be fine. Yeah, I'll work around it. I'll dance around it, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 11 this morning. Uh, so if you, however you prefer, you can turn there, and um, as we continue this 2020 series looking for the gospel from one cover to the next. So uh, today we approach what has been called the most difficult chapter in all of scripture uh, to interpret. And so as, as I approach that, I'm thinking, awesome, right? I mean, that, that deserves a sarcastic awesome, right? Um, but I'm looking forward to it, and uh, it is the Word of God, and so uh, we will walk through it together. Uh, remember, we are now uh, three and a half years through, halfway through the seven-year Great Tribulation. And what we've seen in the, the past few weeks, uh, heaven has made preparation, uh, much of the earth has seen desolation, and now two demonic armies have been given probation as God's wrath is poured out on all who have rejected him. Now, last time we, we began hearing testimonies from the first of three different groups or beings in this interlude or parentheses between the sixth and seventh trumpet. The first testimony was from a mighty angel, if you recall. And we saw this angel is stronger than Satan. He is clothed in a cloud that could represent the presence of God. And on his head is a rainbow, which is always a sign of God's faithfulness. Now, while there are different godly opinions on who this angel is, some choose to believe it is actually Jesus. It could be a number of different heavenly beings, but whoever he is, he takes the stand to give his testimony. And it really doesn't matter if it's Jesus or not, the testimony is the same. What is it? The delay is over. It is time, the patience and long-suffering of God the Father for his enemies has run out. The prayers made billions of times by the saints for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven is finally, they're finally being answered. This is God's timing, it is perfect, it is good, it is right. So this first testimony, possibly from Jesus, the delay is over. In chapter 11, we see the next two. So if you are able, please stand out of respect for the word of God as we start chapter 11, verse 1. The word of God says this. Then I, this is John speaking, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you. You can have a seat. 
So if you are following along the outline on the back of your bulletin, uh, number one is the two witnesses. The two witnesses. <clears throat> so let's uh, first note the place this is happening. Uh, this is in Jerusalem. Uh, it is at the temple that has been rebuilt by Jewish non-believers under the leadership of the Antichrist in the name of God, even though they don't know him. Uh, and this will be done in the first half of the seven-year tribulation. So the timing is three and a half years in. Uh, so the temple is the place where the Antichrist will set himself up as God. Now we're putting a lot of different prophecies together to get this information. Uh, but remember, he has promised peace. It was a false peace. And it was in order to assume power, uh, what he thinks is ultimate power. Now, uh, currently today, this mosque sits at the spot that is being spoken about here in Revelation. So maybe you're familiar, familiar with it. It's called the Dome of the Rock. Um, so this is the actual place. It's in Jerusalem right there. Um, now, we know John Wright's circular coming back to visit and describe some of the same events in, from different vantage points. Uh, so in verse 1, John was told to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, if we think about it, uh, when we buy a new house, uh, we will generally come in with a measuring tape, and we will measure walls, we will measure furniture to make sure that it fits, uh, because we're going to make changes to make it our own. That is what God's doing here. He's taking measurements because he's claiming this territory as his own once and for all. Uh, verse 2, John was told to leave out the court which is outside the temple and did not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months, which is three and a half years. And I will give power to my two witnesses. Prophecy. 260 days. Now, in the Jewish calendar, their months are 30 days. And so when we do the math, the numbers are the same. 42 months, three and a half years. And they will be clothed in sackcloth. Now, so we've noted the time, uh, transitioning from the last half of the seven-year Great Tribulation. The place is Jerusalem. Uh, while John's purpose here in, 11, in chapter 11 is to uh, measure the temple and the altar... And, and the people there, uh, these two witnesses' purposes, purpose is to prophesy. That's the next blank on your outline. The purpose is to prophesy there in verse 3. Now, when someone prophesies, they speak a word from God. And while we don't know exactly uh, what their testimony is, we can just imagine that it is the reality of the wrath of God that is coming upon all who have rejected the gospel of Jesus. Now, let's note these witnesses' power. The next blank on your outline. Note their power. Uh, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that, that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So obviously, something supernatural is going on here. These are no normal human beings. Uh, if anyone so much as wants to harm them, they're consumed 
by fire from their mouths. They can shut up heaven. They can bring drought and famine upon an already devastated earth. They have power to turn water to blood, to strike the earth with plagues as often as they want. And these two witnesses are why chapter 11 is so difficult to interpret. Because I can find godly conservative scholars who believe these are actual two literal witnesses. Some go as far as saying they are Moses and Elijah, uh, the same two that stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Mark 9. However, still others believe that they are symbolic because of verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. Uh, These are the two olive trees of the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Notice that word lampstands. Uh, We've seen it here in Revelation, in in the early chapters. Chapter 120 tells us that the lampstands spoken of there are the seven churches. So it is the same word used here. And so your view of eschatology, the study of end times, will influence what you believe these two witnesses, who who they are. Um, I've always seen them as two literal witnesses. But then when I started digging for myself in this series... Um, I've come to the conclusion that this is probably one, another one of those things that we really can't know for sure. Uh, we just have to choose which one we sense God is leading us to and trust that he knows our hearts and, and trust that this does not affect our salvation nor the fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoever they are, they stand as witnesses of God in Jerusalem. Like Moses, like Elijah, they speak God's words of truth and judgment. They're clothed in sackcloth, noting the spiritual condition of the world. Uh, They have much power at this point until their work is completed. They have supernatural protection. No one can stand against them, and it is a very dark time in the world. Now, in Luke 21-24, Jesus spoke of the times of the Gentiles. Uh, And that's a period where Israel would not live in peace with surrounding nations. Messiah would not yet sit on David's throne. When Gentiles would seem to have the upper hand in this world. And and most importantly for us, when Gentiles would come to know God uh, through his son. I believe that they started back in 588 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Jerusalem and will continue... Until Christ returns. But this here in chapter 11 is the culmination of the times of the Gentiles. That's the next blank on your outline. Chapter 11 is the culmination of the times of the Gentiles. And verse 7 here in chapter 11 is the culmination of the two witnesses' work. Notice they are martyred. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony... The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now let us be reminded that God is orchestrating all of this. 
when they finish their testimony, when God says they're done, when they have completed what God has called them to do, then and only then will the beast be able to overcome them. Now this is the first of 36 references to the beast, which is the next blank on your outline. I believe this is the Antichrist. Ascending from the bottomless pit, his power is satanic, and he is able to overcome and kill the two witnesses. And we're told that their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and they begin to rot, and the world rejoices at their peril. Notice, uh, the people of the city are compared to Sodom and Egypt, both examples of evil, obstinate, hard-heartedness towards God. This scene has been described as sort of a satanic Christmas. All across what is left of the globe, people exchange gifts to celebrate these two deaths. It shows the evil and depravity of the world during this time. Now, consider this. Never before in history would it have ever made sense that peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations would be able to see two witnesses' dead bodies rotting in the streets for three and a half days. More than today. Most of us have a device in our pocket that will allow us to be able to see it almost instantly. So we can't know the day that this will happen, but we can see the pieces being put into place now more than ever. Uh, What happens next is evidence, more evidence of the supernatural. Verse 11. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So I can kind of picture uh, people all over the world getting an alert, an emergency alert on their phones and then pulling out their phones and showing the breath of life returning to these two witnesses. Uh, These dead bodies coming back to life and a voice from heaven uh, calling them up and them ascending. Jesus ascended into heaven the same way as his friends watched him. Here, the enemies of the two witnesses, the enemies of God, they watch in awestruck terror. The ground shook, the city began to fall, specifically 7,000 people were killed. And with the death that has already happened on earth, uh, 7,000 would be no small percentage. You see God doing what he often does. We sing about it today. Taking negative events and using them for his glory. As those who were left began to worship him in verse 13. They gave glory to the God of heaven. So the first testimony from last week. The strong angel, possibly Jesus. The delay is over. The second testimony from the two witnesses here in chapter 11. More of the same. They prophesy the truths of God and ultimately bring him glory. At this point in the narrative, the parentheses that opened in chapter 10 between the 6th and 7th trumpet are closed. Uh, We've been waiting for this third woe ever since chapter 8, verse 13. The 7th trumpet brings the third testimony. It comes from heaven, 
specifically from the 24 elders around the throne of God. And so number two on your outline, it is the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet. Pick it up in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of, the co- of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake, and great hail. So we've, we've seen heaven come unglued back in chapter 5, when Jesus took the scroll out of the mighty right hand of God the Father. Here it comes unglued again. And this third, th- th- this seventh trumpet With it comes at least three things. First is an announcement of victory. It's an announcement of victory. Uh, Verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now we know and we believe that Jesus is sovereign over All the earth. All the universe. But we also know that most of the time, it really doesn't seem like it. Because we see the effects of evil and sin all around us. But this is where his long-suffering and patience comes in. He has allowed sin's effect on this world. He has allowed Satan certain boundaries in this world. As king of kings, he can do that. But this scene in verse 15, it describes the time when he will rule over kingdoms of this world like he currently rules over the unseen spiritual kingdom. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The earthly kingdom was under the rule of the Antichrist. Now, Jesus claims victory over him. Remember back in Matthew Satan offered Jesus this kingdom when when he tempted him. Um, Notice verse 8. Again, the devil took him upon an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But this was not the way or the time that Jesus would assume to reign. Instead, he chose to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, and return to heaven and wait on his Father to give him his inheritance. With that in mind, listen to Psalm 2. It's a messianic psalm. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. This is God speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and shall dash them to pieces with a potter's vessel. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 says that Jesus will reign until all his enemies are put under his feet. And church, let us not forget, no matter how difficult things become and no matter how defeated God's people appear, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is in control, and one day he will claim victory over all. There is an announcement of victory with the seventh trumpet. Secondly, there is a declaration of praise. A declaration of praise. Verse 16. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So it appears a major role of these elders is praise. Uh, they praise the Creator in chapter 4. They praise the Redeemer in chapter 5. Here, they leave their thrones to fall on their faces and worship Jesus First as the one who reigns, notice verse 17, you have taken your great power and you have reigned. Secondly, they praise Jesus as the one who will judge, in verse 18, he will judge righteously. And thirdly, they worship him because he graciously rewards those great and small who fear him. This further points to victory. He reigns supremely. He judges righteously. He rewards graciously. This is the leader the world has grown for ever since the fall. None can match him. None other is worthy. None other holds the victory. Verse 18 gives us an order of events for the rest of the book. First, it tells us the nations were angry. Why would the nations be angry? Because they didn't get their way. They overtook Jerusalem in, in verse 2. They rejoiced over the death of the two witnesses in verse 9. Now they're angry because God has said, no more. Verse 18 again. Your wrath has come. In the time of the dead, they should be judged. You should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And we're going to see this unfold in the chapters to come. But we have an announcement of victory. We have a declaration of praise. The chapter ends with, a third, a reminder of God's faithfulness. A reminder of God's faithfulness. <clears throat> Verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. We started the chapter with the earthly temple, where the two witnesses stood and prophesied. We end the chapter with a scene from the heavenly temple. And don't allow the, the weather pattern to cause you to miss the ark of the covenant. Now, this is more than an Indiana Jones movie. It is the very symbol of God's presence with his people. In the Old Testament, 
It stood behind the veil, the Holy of Holies. God's glory rested there. The tablets of the law were inside. It shows us that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is just. But it also shows us that God is faithful to do what he says he will do. He brought Israel through the wilderness. He gave mercy even after Moses came down with the first set of tablets and Israel was worshiping a golden calf. See, even in wrath, God remembers his mercy towards his people. We need not fear the storm because God is faithful. This point, the stage is set for a terrible trio in chapters 12 and 13. And we hope to pick it up there next week. Would you just uh, bow your heads and close your eyes as we go into a time of invitation? A lot of stuff to take in here today. But aren't you thankful that God speaks to our hearts? Through, through this chapter, I'm just reminded of God's faithfulness, of God's victory. How he takes what the enemy means for evil and turns it for good. Of God's purposes. <clears throat> what in your life, when you hear that word victory, what area do you just long for victory in your life? Can you, can you give that to the Lord? What is it in your life that you know that the enemy meant it for evil... And you just long to see God turn it for good. What's God saying to you through his word? What's he asking you to do about it?